Welcome to HealthCast, the heartbeat of health IT. I'm your host, Faith Ryan. Biotech and pharmaceutical companies are moving quickly to enroll participants into massive clinical trials for COVID-19 treatments. In the past week, we've heard preliminary results from Pfizer and Moderna about their COVID-19 vaccines. Both are at over 90% effectiveness for preventing disease. This is great news. In fact, Dr. Anthony Fauci stated that these advancements are impressive. But as Dr. Fauci cautioned, we have not yet reached the end. For vaccines to be made widely available and distributed to the public, it takes time, and they must meet FDA's safety standards and work for the general population. Joining me in this episode is Dr. Jim Kublin, a global health expert who has extensive experience researching vaccines for a variety of infectious diseases, such as HIV-AIDS. Dr. Kublin serves as the Executive Director of Operation Programs for the COVID-19 Prevention Network, and we discussed the large-scale effort to enroll participants into COVID-19 treatment studies through this network, all while focusing on the role technology can play in addressing health equity challenges. All right, so Dr. Kublin, you are the Executive Director of the Operations Program at the COVID-19 Prevention Network, and this is a large-scale effort. Basically, enroll people into COVID-19 vaccine and antibody treatment clinical trials. But for our listeners, could you explain what the COVID-19 Prevention Network exactly is? Sure. So the NIH, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, that is led by Dr. Tony Fauci, charged us with the responsibility of contributing to and helping lead the COVID-19 prevention efforts. It includes active vaccination, the vaccines that people are typically familiar with, as well as monoclonal antibodies for prevention. And we have garnered all of our resources internationally across the globe to contribute to these critical efficacy trials, evaluating vaccines and monoclonal antibodies for prevention to really control this pandemic. Could you actually go into a little bit more detail about what the clinical trials entail? They are specifically phase three clinical trials. That's right. So typically, you know, for the development of a good prevention intervention, such as vaccines, they undergo a lot of preclinical assessments for safety in uh, preclinical animal models. And then they proceed into phase one clinical trials, which are the first in human evaluations of the safety of these candidates. Then they move into phase two clinical trials where expanded data on safety as well as immunogenicity, that is how well the immune response to these vaccines is mounting with regard to potential for efficacy. And then only in the phase three trial, which includes thousands, if not tens of thousands of individuals, are we able to assess the potential of vaccine efficacy. And then, of course, also additional, even even further expanded data and evaluation of the safety. And so it's really these phase three trials that are providing us the critical signals on how well these vaccines and monoclonal antibodies are working. And these clinical trials, they were arranged by NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. Could you go into more detail about how many networks are involved in this entire COVID-19 prevention network and how old the networks are? Sure. We have quite a few partners in this effort, and much of the foundational work that is resulting from our efforts was built on 
HIV vaccine and HIV prevention networks. And so we have both the HVTN, the HIV vaccine trials network, and the HPTN, the prevention trials network, that were established over two decades ago to move forward in combating the HIV pandemic. And other networks that we're also working with include Infectious Disease Research Consortium, as well as the AIDS Clinical Trials Group, all of which, again, were founded by the NIAID at NIH. And we're also working in collaboration with, of course, the vaccine developers who are manufacturing these vaccines, as well as other groups in HHS, such as BARDA, the Department of Defense, and many commercial clinical trial sites around the world who are all contributing to this global effort. I find that amazing because you are also the executive director for the HIV Vaccine Trials Network, and you've been working on you know, the discovery of an HIV vaccine for years. So could you highlight how significant this launch is for uncovering a vaccine in such a short period of time? Indeed, I, I think we have a lot of optimism regarding our ability to develop vaccines against COVID in this rapid time frame. The virus is very different from HIV, of course. We're not encumbered by many of the challenges that the HIV virus and resulting infection presents for us. This virus is cured by natural immune responses in people most of the time. You know, most people, fortunately, do not succumb to severe illness. And in part, that's because of their natural immune response resulting from natural infection. So that provides us, that alone, some very clear evidence that the feasibility and probability of success of a vaccine is very high. And then additionally, so much of the technology applied to HIV vaccine research, as well as other pathogens over the past decade or two, have resulted in modern technologies across the different platforms we're testing that have contributed to being able to develop these vaccines in such a rapid and historic manner. You know, just a decade ago, we would not have had such immediate progress against COVID with these different vaccine platforms as we have today. And much of that progress has been a result of NIH research and investment into the research and development by the U.S. government at so many different academic institutions around the world. Yeah, a lot of academic institutions around the world. So the United States specifically is you know, seeing recently more than 100,000 new COVID-19 cases every day, too. It's these clinical trials specifically are super important because in order to find some semblance of ease is to enroll people into these clinical trials so that we can have the efficacy data to prove that these vaccines are safe and effective. And I guess going into the clinical trials and its challenges, what are some of the challenges with recruiting participants for COVID-19 clinical trials that the COVPN has identified? Well, we've encountered quite a few challenges over the past few months regarding getting sufficient numbers of people enrolled in these clinical trials who are the right participants. And by the right participants, I mean those who are unfortunately likely to be exposed, infected, and progress to disease in the United States and internationally where we work in other countries. And part of that has been, I think, a lot of suspicion and questioning that the general public has had regarding the pace with which we're moving. 
some vaccine hesitancy, certainly, that exists within different communities, and a lack of transparency and clear communication from leadership with regard to the pandemic in general, the efforts to control and prevent transmission in our communities, and how critical participating in vaccine clinical trials is really for the general public health of our country. You know, there are historical legacies that also cause some people to question whether or not the current research has been done ethically and with all of the critical standards that are necessary. And so part of the challenge for us is ensuring that we're fully transparent in communicating as understandably as possible to the general public that what we're doing is maintaining those critical ethical concepts and applying those concepts to the way we're implementing these clinical trials. Could you go into more detail about why diverse participant representation is critical to ensuring the safety and effectiveness of a COVID-19 vaccine? Well, as we've seen, you know, the impact of COVID in the United States has been disproportionately affecting those communities such as minority populations, specifically African-American, Black, Hispanic, Latinx, some of the Asian Pacific Islander communities. These minority populations who may be also at some, in some cases, socioeconomically vulnerable because of the occupations that they have. And we do know that occupational activity, social activity, residential density, all are contributing to the impact of COVID in our communities. So ensuring that we have a diverse representation in our clinical trials is critical, not only to ensure that these individuals from these communities see that their fellow citizens and their friends and family are participating in these clinical trials, but also because the critical endpoints for these clinical trials, such as simply infection of COVID or progression to severe disease are represented in the clinical trials. So, you know, a challenge for us is ensuring that we have the trust of these communities. And thus, we've built on the community engagement efforts that we started with our HIV vaccine efforts and applied much of that to the COVID-19 vaccine and monoclonal antibody efforts. Are there any similarities that you see between healthcare disparities with HIV and those of COVID-19? Well, that's a very interesting question, and there are some similarities, but of course, you know, some that are very different. HIV is a sexually transmitted infection. SARS-CoV-2, the virus causing COVID-19, is transmitted, you know, by interpersonal contact and respiratory. Yet at the same time, Communities that are at greatest risk are often communities that have some level of vulnerability, again, because they may have the need to continue working, they may have difficulty quarantining, they may have higher residential density within their communities. All of these factors are contributing to SARS-CoV-2 transmission. One critical step that researchers and people sponsoring these clinical trials can take to confront healthcare disparities is to make sure that the clinical trials are more inclusive of multiple populations. Another question I had was, what is currently being done to better inform the public and ensure that they make well-informed decisions regarding clinical trial participation, but also make sure that they are protected and safe? Well, Faith, as you, as you know, many of your listeners are interested in how 
technology can contribute to this. And so we straight away developed a website that we think is of very high quality and answering a lot of the questions that people have regarding the uncertainty of whether or not they want to participate in a clinical trial. And, and certainly, you know, participation in a clinical trial is not for everyone, but at the same time, in the current pandemic, and specifically how the epidemic is impacting us here domestically, you know, in many respects, this is a social responsibility, a civic duty in many ways to participate in these efforts, however people decide to do so. And so, you know, we've developed the technology to ensure that clear communication and information is available regarding many of the questions people have regarding participating in these clinical trials. And then we built a registry that only takes four and a half to five minutes to complete for those interested in volunteering for these clinical trials. And that registry includes a questionnaire that really tries to assess individuals' risk and their potential eligibility for these clinical trials. We have over 460,000 individuals who have completed this questionnaire. Wow, 460,000. Exactly. We're very excited about that, but we really need about a million more. Wow. So we, we really need to get the word out. Uh, this is at preventcovid.org. And the technology behind this is very secure. It's, of course, maintaining confidentiality to an utmost degree. And we only provide contact information that participants provide to the clinical trial site within their area, within their zip code catchment area. And so we collect some of the critical baseline demographics, age, weight, as well as critical other data such as occupation, social activity, residential conditions, commuting activities, as well as pre-existing medical conditions. As we know, some of these pre-existing morbidities are highly associated with regression to moderate to severe COVID disease. And then we apply an analytics to all of this data that is provided to the sites so that they can try to identify those individuals within their catchment areas who are at the greatest risk of infection and progressing to COVID disease. And this technology has really been a fantastic tool that now over 350 clinical trial sites just in the U.S. are using to recruit into all of these clinical trials. And it's somewhat agnostic to individual uh, developer. But it really then is up to the individual participant to decide whether or not, if they're contacted, they want to participate in that individual clinical trial. So this has been a big boon for the sites as they're able to also filter participants based on some of their demographics and risk criteria and then select those individuals that they will then reach out to contact and recruit into the individual clinical trial. And how many clinical trials are currently going on right now, and how is their participant recruitment going so far? Well, those clinical trials that the COVPN is assisting with and contributing to include the Moderna clinical trial. We're contributing a little bit to the Pfizer clinical trial, and then AstraZeneca and Janssen. All four of these phase three efficacy trials are underway and enrolling participants today. You know, the news just broke this morning about the Pfizer vaccine preliminary results, which is fantastic evidence that the multiple platforms that we're studying have a very high likelihood of success. 
you know, it's critical that we complete studies across these different platforms. Each vaccine may have advantages with regard to its distribution, its storage conditions, and its safety. We won't know a lot of the answers to these questions for weeks or months to come, but this preliminary news is very positive and a fantastic day for us all. The construct that they're using in that vaccine is very similar to the other platforms. And so we're really enthused and even further motivated by these preliminary results. We also have two other clinical trials that we're planning to launch in the next month or two. So that would be a total of five or six clinical trials that are each requiring 30 to 60,000 participants. And again, those participants need to fulfill a number of different criteria. So we expect to literally require over a million participants in the registry to enroll the 150,000 into the actual phase three efficacy trials. And what percentage of participants have to fulfill this requirement for diversity or what is the network aiming for? Well, we're certainly focused on ensuring that we have a good representation of diversity in our clinical trials that at least reflects the proportion of these different populations from the general public. You know, so that could be up to 30 to 40 percent minorities that are Black, African American, Hispanic, Latinx. And it depends on, of course, the community in which the clinical trial setting is based. And we also recognize that, again, these race ethnicities are disproportionately impacted by the epidemic as well. And so the percent of infections in the general population among these different race ethnicities is higher than their population-based proportion. So that is additional reason why we really need to ensure we're enrolling diverse populations in the efficacy trials. Are there any other groups that are going to be included in these clinical trials? I know that there have been discussions about pregnant women and even children. Absolutely, and certainly the elderly as well. And so in the current efficacy trials, we do have targets for ensuring that there are sufficient numbers of elderly in the clinical trials. They are much more predisposed to having and progressing to severe disease. But we are also in discussions about those very studies dropping down into adolescents initially, and then eventually into young children, and likewise are looking at the critical safety data that's necessary to move into expecting mothers and pregnant women. Also, I think it was actually today, the Food and Drug Administration, their commissioner, Stephen Hahn, announced that the agency released some new guidance about enhancing the diversity of clinical trial populations. I'm not sure if you've also been able to look at that. But yeah, I thought that was interesting how this is all sort of is really being pushed by medical experts, you know, the importance of diversity and addressing the health disparities that we're seeing for these populations for Black, Latinx communities, Native American populations, the elderly specifically, because, you know, 80% of I think it's 80%. The last time I checked, it was 80%. 80% of you know COVID-19 mortality rates were coming from nursing homes. Yeah. I mean, I think the attention that the medical community has put on ensuring that we have appropriate populations enrolled in these clinical trials is a result of both the health disparity that exists in our country and the fact that this epidemic has brought to the forefront evidence for that dramatic disparity in health. And also, you know, the tremendous motivation we have within the medical community to address these disparities in health. 
and how best to do so. And one way to do so is to ensure that these populations disproportionately impacted are participating in these clinical trials that are testing the efficacy of these vaccines. What other opportunities still exist to improve the network's outreach and impact on using technology? Well, you know, to improve the network's outreach, we're developing public service announcements. We're working with different community engagement groups, radio, television, and of course, social media across multiple platforms to get the message out that preventcovid.org is really the place to go to volunteer for these clinical trials. And, you know, the access and the use of this volunteer screening registry at preventcovid.org has been a major focus of the technological applications that are really helping us enroll the critical participants for these efficacy trials. Are there other precautionary steps that you'd recommend people take before COVID-19 vaccine is approved? Well, I think the recommendations in following the local public health guidelines I think wearing masks does prove to be effective in reducing transmission. Social or physical distancing does contribute. Being cautious and mindful of others while going out of the house is really important. So I think there's a lot that people can do before we have these efficacious vaccines. And then when we do have them, of course, the critical uptake and participation in these vaccine campaigns will be a critical next step. Yeah, everyone is really looking forward to seeing the promises that are to come for a COVID-19 vaccine. Thank you so much, Dr. Kublin, for joining me for this episode to highlight the large-scale effort to enroll people into COVID-19 vaccine clinical trials and specifically how technology can be used to help address the health disparities in combating COVID-19. No, it's been my pleasure, and thank you for your interest and trying to get the message out there that participation in these clinical trials is that much more critical. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris, Adam Patterson, and Faith Bryan. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.